Hi folks, I'm Ian McKenzie and welcome to this latest episode of Political Bites. Having introduced and interviewed my colleagues uh, on previous episodes, in this episode I would like to take the unusual opportunity of offering you my own tuppence worth. I'm a political theorist and I'm particularly interested in how political ideas relate to and help us think about practices of resistance. Today I'm talking about what the point of resistance is. Thanks. 2020 is bound to be remembered as the year of the pandemic, but it should also be remembered as the year in which we've seen some of the most courageous acts of resistance for quite some time, from the streets of Washington to those of Kashmir via the city squares of Belarus. There have been incredible acts of bravery as people have risen up against straightforward brutality, corruption and tyranny the world over. Given that, it might seem odd that I want to ask this question, but I think it's even more important that we do in the context of those uprisings. The question is this, what's the point of resistance today? And the way I want to kind of approach this is by telling three stories of resignation in the first instance, and then ending with one story of hope. The three stories of resignation will take us from Enlightenment to postmodernism. It will take us on a journey through the end of the new social movements, and it'll also take us from the demands of discipline to those of control. Those stories provide reasons for questioning resistance, questioning the value and sustainability of resistance. But there is a story of hope, and that's going to be the story, as I'll call it, of the suspicious artist. And that story of hope uh, is one that um, we'll come to towards the end of this podcast. But let me take you first to reasons why we might be resigned about the prospects of resistance today. There was a time when resistance was done with God on your side. Or if you weren't particularly religious, you knew at least that you had reason on your side. Reason was there to save us from arbitrary tyranny and from the superstitions of scholastic medieval life that led to the terrible, sometimes okay, overdone and cliched accounts, but nonetheless terrible accounts of witch burning and so on and so forth. So enlightenment was there to valorise reason, to enable us to put proper grounding under the natural sciences so that we can know what we know and we can know how we know it and those two things can be bound together through the harmony of reason. Anything that was shown wanting from the perspective of reason would therefore need to be overthrown. This took us away from the simple contemplation of objects to a turn inwards to thinking about how we think about the world. It took us towards, in other words, the notion of the subject, towards the notion of reflection rather than contemplation. All of this in the story of enlightenment is profound and major innovation in human history, completely changing the way that we think and completely informing many of the challenges that still we find on our streets today. But as soon as enlightenment came into existence as soon as people began to proclaim the virtues of reason we found people doubting it and the first doubters of the enlightenment are the romantics because what the romantics said was well okay we we get what you're saying about reason but what about emotion and what about intuition 
In other words, what about our feelings? The feelings of experiencing wonder at nature, the feeling of just being one, the sense of a kind of communion that you have with other people, perhaps even that sense of oneness with, indeed, the divine. So the Romantics kind of took us back to an awareness of our feelings, of our emotions, of our intuitions, to try to question the emerging unity of reason. They weren't the only ones challenging the Enlightenment and, and reason. We also had those working within the Enlightenment tradition who began to think that actually the way in which we conceived of human reason couldn't just be said once and for all. We had to think about how our history as human beings, how our development as individuals and as collectives shaped what we think counts as reasonable. And we began to see the emergence of ways of thinking about how we think about what we know that included from within historical reflection. But just as history became important, so did geography. Because we also became aware that it's not just us, typically, as it was at the time, white Western males who change over time and think about things differently as we do so. There are, in fact, of course, lots of different kinds of uh, human individual. And this was particularly evident in the way in which people came into contact with non-Western cultures, largely, of course, through the uh, dynamics of capitalism, uh, slavery and colonialism. All of which, of course, led us to question the sanctity of reason, the unity of reason and its simple ability to inform us when it comes to resisting arbitrary tyranny. So by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, things are looking a little bit fragile in terms of the Enlightenment. It's been questioned in very many different ways. And of course then, as soon as we enter the 20th century, we see the emergence of tensions within Europe that bubble up dynamically in the First World War and tragically, of course. So we see at that point a whole range of different responses to the legacy of the Enlightenment that seem to suggest that it's, it's crumbled or it's cracked or it's failed. But there's a small group of kind of interesting um, avant-garde writers and intellectuals who decide to try and hang on to some of the spirit of that progressive thinking. And they, of course, are the modernists, the ones who says, well, OK, we can't be sure that we know what we know exactly. We can't be entirely confident in how we make our claims given that we don't quite know what's happening with history we can't quite know how everybody thinks about things all the time but we can know that there's a value to progress there's a value to trying to formulate new ways of writing thinking and yes even feeling and so we have some of those fantastic uh, particularly literary examples of modern uh, experimentation at the time but of course what happens is that that sense of a new formal expression of enlightenment, one in which the, the very idea of just experimentation itself has been taken forward, begins to look less convincing in the aftermath of the Second World War and the development of intellectual life through the 60s and 70s. And by the time we then get to the developments, changing economy, changing world politics, globalisation and so on, we also see the emergence of postmodern forms of thought. And here the idea is that not even the formalist modern ideas can save us from the world. So by the time we get to postmodernism, there's a range of thinkers who are expressing the idea that really nothing can save us. 
There is no content to reason that will give us a reason to resist. There's no formal nature to reason that will give us a reason to resist. We just have to effectively make do with what we've got. And yeah, okay, maybe we can have a little bit of fun and play around uh, while we're here, but let's not hope we can change it for the better. So that's my first story of resignation because it's a story of the demise of reason from its high point of enlightenment expression in the late 18th century. Relatedly, there's a story about social movements. I've been kind of weaving that in as we've, as we've gone. Because once upon a time, you know, we knew what we were fighting for. We were fighting for a place in the economy, largely. And these old social movements that we now effectively call unions were movements that were very directly aimed at enabling workers to have decent living wages, decent terms and conditions. And my goodness... They've created some of the most important changes uh, that we've seen uh, in the Western world. And we see today, of course, right across the world, that the rise of of unions is a really crucial and important part of any uh, democratisation process, where, particularly in countries where capital investment is so, so strong, which pretty much is every country in the world these days. But... Unions, of course, became uh, in many different ways uh, effectively embroiled uh, within the conversations they were having with their bosses and, you know, in some respects came to kind of importantly represent the negotiations going on there, but not always capture what it was that people wanted to uh, resist in in their lives. So we saw the emergence, of course, in, in, well, broadly speaking, in the 1960s, but this has a longer history, of course, we saw the emergence of what came to be known as new social movements. These are movements not so much based on economic interest, but based on identity. People wanting to have their identity properly reflected within uh, the democratic world. We see this, of course, in the Black Civil Rights Movement. We see it in the Women's Movement, again, Lesbian Liberation Movements, and so on and so forth. These movements were all about trying to gain access to public sphere that was denied them or where they were treated unequally because of their identities. Again, absolutely crucial ongoing, live and dynamic movements. But they're movements of a particular sort. They're movements, again, looking to gain access to the democratic public realm. And it became clear from largely within these movements that not all members of these new social movements really wanted to gain access to that world. They weren't all comfortable in that world. So we began to see the emergence of what we might call kind of contentious politics, where people were kind of trying to disrupt some of the settled agreements of a democratic public realm. And they were trying to effectively work against the, uh, or in parallel perhaps, maybe rather than against the public life and creating their own uh, little mini publics. And so we saw what, as some commentators have called it, the emergence of kind of counter publics, looking not so much to gain access to discussion of public life, but really just wanting to have their own way of doing things and to be effectively left alone. So we begin to see here a kind of a dynamic. Now, this dynamic is complicated. It's not simple. I've just kind of, you know, highlighted some elements to it. But a dynamic in which people have looked to join into economic development. They've looked to join into democratic development and public life. And then some have looked to question whether we should be actually joining in with that economic and that political status quo. Maybe what we need to be doing is challenging it from a parallel position or from outside. Is the point of resistance to make democracy better? 
is the point of resistance to make capitalism better or is the point of resistance to do away with capitalism and possibly even to overcome democracy to find an even better way of doing things than democracy? These are big and complex questions. I'm not pretending to have answers, but we can see that there are movements uh, that are beginning to question the point of resistance because it's not always about joining the club. Sometimes it's about changing the rules completely. Now, a very brief story of resignation as my third one. Once upon a time, there was a sovereign and the sovereign decided ultimately who lived and who died. The sovereign was overthrown and in place of the sovereign, we saw the emergence of what we like to refer to as a whole series of disciplines. What we mean by disciplines here are, you know, regulated ways of behaviour, regulated ways of doing things, typically based on norms of behaviour that we are encouraged to internalise. As one famous uh, social theorist put it, the Enlightenment which discovered the liberties also invented the disciplines. So we're allowed to be free, free from the arbitrary uh, will of the sovereign, but only on account of, or only if we then agree to abide by these regulated forms of behaviour and internalise the norms to make that uh, those regulated forms of behaviour part and parcel of how we uh, organise ourselves. Now, that's quite a, a, an interesting analysis. And when we think about what it means for resistance, well, the resistance to that tends to be transgressing the norm, transgressing the regulation, transgressing the form of behaviour. We see a lot of resistance takes that, precisely that form. But what happens when that kind of transgression of discipline is actually then actively encouraged so that it can then be shaped and used for the further production of capital and the further instantiation of what we now call control. So there's a shift, it's argued, not everybody agrees with this, from ways of being disciplined towards uh, forms of control. And here we see uh, a shift from, if you like, surveillance through CCTV cameras to the constant integration of our lives through data mining and algorithms. And it's thinking about how the CCTV disciplines us by keeping an eye on us, so to speak, whereas the algorithms control us by shaping our activity in ways that we're not particularly aware of. And that then, if that is where we are, then it's not always obvious how we resist control if control actually in many respects thrives on transgression. There's a whole lot of bits of the story there that I'm, I'm, I'm not saying. We need to fill in lots of gaps and so on and so forth. But it's just to give you a sense that between the shift from Enlightenment to postmodernism and the shifting nature of uh, social movements and this shift from discipline to control, we see three reasons to be resigned about the prospects of resistance today. Resigned because every form of resistance would seem to lead us back into some kind of complicity or would seem to be resting upon problematic assumptions that we can no longer shore up in a complex, globalised, diverse world. I did promise you a story of hope though. And my uh, last brief story is uh, that of the suspicious artist. Why suspicious? Well, suspicious, because that's the word um, that we often use to describe those thinkers who are not just able to diagnose what's wrong with the world, but they're able to give reasons for why those who resist might also be complicit with the problem. And that combination of being able to diagnose the problem and diagnose 
that those who want to answer the problem might also be part of the problem is the, the motif of suspicion. There are lots of different ways of being suspicious. Um, the classic thinkers of suspicion are those 19th uh, century, early 20th century thinkers, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, but there are lots of others as well. So what's important is that sense of not simply accepting that there's an easy answer to how we resist corruption, tyranny and brutality. That sometimes our resistance of brutality and corruption and, and tyranny might indeed help ultimately to deepen or shore up forms of brutality, forms of corruption and forms of tyranny. That recognition, though, wouldn't get you very far. That recognition itself would leave you a little bit stuck. But that's where the second part of the story is really important because it's not just someone who's suspicious, but it's a suspicious artist. Because what do the artists do? Artists are able to work themselves out of the impossible bind. And they're able to think of important ways of abstracting away from that bind in order to try to experiment in interesting sorts of ways. The suspicious artist is one who's suspicious of binaries, of impossibilities, of the end game, of the rules of the game, of the material, the immaterial, of complex ideas, the legacies of enlightenment and postmodern romanticism. They're even suspicious of simple stories. Reminded of Picasso's famous quote, I'm sure many of you will know, every child is an artist, the problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. So the suspicious artist is the one who is able to question our responses to the problems in the world as well as simply diagnose the problem. But also suspicious artist is the person who's then able to offer a creative solution out of that impossible bind, out of that binary, out of that complicity, someone who can create out of the uh, situation of complicity. The point of resistance today then, I would suggest, is to be the suspicious artist. Thank you for listening to our latest episode of Political Bites. We'll be back soon with more. As always, if you have a topic you would like to see us discuss, then please contact us via email at paulirnews at kent.ac.uk or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram. Details which you can find in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye.